Let's start in verse four. But I have said these things to you that when their their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I do not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me and none of you ask, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. If you notice in your bulletin, I'm going to say this just so we're clear on how we're proceeding and what we're doing. We did two songs and now here we are in the sermon and we're going to do two songs after. And the reason we're going to do it this morning is we're going to hopefully, as we look at what Galatians said, it's going to lead us to worship. So that's why we're going to do it. With that in mind, let's let's go to God's word. Let's get back into Galatians. If you've been with us. You know, we're working through it. We're going to end, we're going to pull up the end of chapter 3 and move into chapter 4 today. Here we are, our seventh week, and we're hitting the halfway point. So, somebody asked me, how many more sermons are there in Galatians? I said, I'm not sure yet. But what, what I do know, we are hitting the halfway point this week. So, we're moving our way through Galatians and what it says. And um, as, as, we're, as we're moving in today, I was trying to think of an example of kind of what Paul's doing. And I think that a good way to think of it is... Um, if you've ever, uh, well, I think this applies to everybody. You've ever felt really poorly? You've ever been really sick where you just feel awful? And how when, when, when you're sick, when you get over it, it makes you so appreciative of how well you feel. If you've ever had that where you just feel so crummy. And then, or maybe it's uh, if you don't sleep well. If you've ever had a spell where you just can't sleep and you're tossing and turning and you can't sleep. And then finally when you sleep well, it just makes it so much better. The comparison of the two. Well, that's kind of what Paul's going to do today in Galatians. He's going to give us two sides. And what he's going to show us is what our life, what it looks like when we live under the law versus living under the promise. And he's going to put the two side by side. And by taking the one, the the negative part, the not so good part, it makes the good part look so much better. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to spend a little time looking at this stark contrast of when you try to live under the law Versus living under the promise. Just by way of a um, review, as we, as we jump into that, we talked a lot about that last week. Living by works versus the promise. And this, so this week's really going to be the experiential side of it, in a way. Um, but as we've been moving through Galatians, hopefully if you've been here, you're getting... I, I keep doing this every week, and hopefully you're getting to where this outline's coming in your, in your brain and it's being cemented if you've been here. And if you're not or you haven't been here, hopefully this catches you up. But what we've been saying each week is there's false teachers that have come into the churches in Galatia. And what they're teaching is a Christ plus. 
Jesus plus doing some other stuff is how you're saved. And Paul writes this letter to say that is not true. That is not what the Bible says. It is not Christ plus. It is Jesus alone. And that's what he says. And what we've been seeing is the first two chapters, Paul spends a lot of time defending himself. A lot of the first two chapters are about Paul's personal defense and why they should listen to him. And then we got to a couple weeks ago, we hit chapter 3, and chapter 3 and 4 is very much a theological defense. He goes back and he looks at the Old Testament and he starts to make his case of why this has always been the case. That it was always about Jesus and it was always about the promise and it was not about the law. And that's what we spent time on last week. What we were saying last week is the law, the Mosaic law, the stuff that God gave to Moses way back was there to point to Jesus. It was never our way to salvation. It was just to point to the way of salvation, which is faith in Jesus alone. And that's what we've been saying and we've been working up. So last week we jumped into that. And really there's going to be a lot of ties back to what we talked about last week. So I'll kind of review a few of those things as we move along. And if you would, if you'll turn with me to Galatians chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 23. And we're going to work our way through verse 7 of chapter 4. So 323 to 4-7. And if you would, I'm going to read that for us as we begin, and then we'll, we'll look into these verses and really see what Paul is saying. So let's start with verse 23. It says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned till the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to to promise. I mean that heir... That the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, So that we might receive adoptions as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray and then we're going to look at those verses. Dear Lord, we thank you for the promise. We thank you for what it means for us that we now can live under that promise And uh, I pray this morning that as we contemplate what that means, that we would see more fully the beauty of that promise and what it means experientially, what it means for us daily. As believers, we thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you for the promise of sending Jesus and that he's come to do what we could never do. We thank you, thank you, and we pray it in his precious name. Amen. As we begin today, we're going to contrast what it looks like, what Paul's doing, to live under the law, Versus under the promise. So what we're going to look at is who, are, who we are when we, when we make the decision to live under the law. That's the first thing we're going to look at. And I'm going to tell you, it's not a very pretty picture. If you choose to live under the law, it's not a real pretty picture. And then the second thing we're going to say, who are we? What does it look like when we decide to live under the promise? 
And then third, what does that shift, what does the change mean for us as believers today? So those three things. So let's start with who we are when we're under the law. What happens when we're under the law? So just as by way of review, we talked a lot about law versus promise last week and what that means. Just so we're clear, law, when I say living under the law, we're talking about a two-sided relationship. And what that means is when we live under the law, I'll give you the example again of if I ask, um, if you'll mow my lawn and I say I will give you $20 if you'll mow my lawn. And by the way, if anybody wants to mow my lawn for $20, I will give you $20 to mow my lawn. But but just as as a a law relationship, that's that's what's happening. Because I say you mow my lawn and I will give you the money. So we both have a side. That's a two-sided or a law relationship. And the reason we talked about that last week is that is the way every religion outside of Christianity works. All of them. They're all a law relationship. And what I mean by that is there's some things that you do to be accepted. To be accepted by God or whatever, whatever you're praying to. But what they say down the line is, You do A, B, and C, and you do them the best you can, and if you do them okay, then God will accept you. You see how that's two-sided. I do something, then God does something in response to what I do, and he accepts me. And that's a law relationship, and it's so important we look at that because that's the way so much of our world works. To be honest, that's the way a lot of people look at Christianity. They assume that's what it is. If they don't understand it, that's what they... There's a lot of people within the church that operate that way. They still fall back into that and think that's what it is. And so it's important that we see that because that's what the Judaizers, the Judaizers being the false teachers in Galatia in Paul's day, that's what they were teaching. It's Jesus plus some other stuff. It's a two-sided relationship. You accept Christ and then you do the other things and then God will accept you. So they were making it into this relationship that it's not that it was never supposed to be. And what Paul starts to show us is what happens when you start to fall into that. When you live that way, thinking my worth and uh, my righteousness before God is the stuff I do and then he accepts me, he gives us this very clear picture of what happens. And it's pretty awful. So look with me at what he says. Look at verse 24 first. We're going to look at verse 24 and then verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4 together. We're going to take those together. So look at 24. It says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So he says, when you're under law, you're under a guardian until Christ came. And then in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4, he expands on that. And he says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So what Paul's talking about, he gives us a very specific example that his audience would have known very well. And a lot of times we read this and we think, okay, a guardian, and we just we skim over it, and we don't get the fullness of what he's saying. What Paul's talking about is in his day, um, a lot of times many of the wealthier people in, in Rome and around that area where Paul's talking about would have slaves. They would have people that worked for them in their house, and they were considered their slaves. And what they would do is they would have one of their slaves be over their children. They would be appointed guardian of their children. And what they would do is... Just for practical uh, reference, modern day reference, it's kind of like they were uh, a nanny and a tutor and a teacher kind of all rolled into one. They took care of the child. They taught them. They brought them up. And what Paul's saying is they, they were the guardian over the child. And even though that child is the child of the owner of the house, 
The child's not a slave. He's their child. But they're under a guardian who's one of their slaves. So what he's saying is when we live under the law, we're just like the child that's under the guardian. We're, under, we're, we're essentially a slave. <laughs> we're being held uh, under this person. And that's what Paul makes the uh, analogy with the law for us. I mean, you think about it as a child um, under a guardian. You have rules. You have curfews. You have things you can and can't do. Um, modern day equivalent, if you've ever heard or you, maybe you've said it as a parent. You live under my house. You live under my rules. Um, that's probably, if, you, if you're still living, you know, I see our, our younger people here, you're still under that. You know exactly what I mean. There's certain things you can and can't do. You have rules you have to follow. And by the way, that's a good thing. Sorry, if you're a teenager, that's a good thing. Um, you think when you're a teenager, and this is for all of us, this applies to every person in the room. When you're a teenager, you think you know everything, and the reality is you know very little. So you need a guardian. You need someone to say it's not a good idea for you to stay up all night and you need to go to bed and that, that sorts of thing. So, so what Paul's talking about is partly a good thing. We need a guardian. We needed the law before Christ came to help keep us in line. And we talked about that last week. But also he's making it, the connection he's making is not such a good thing. Is he's saying you're not really free when you're under a guardian. You have someone over you and they're telling you what to do and when you go and what you can do and what you can't do. And he's saying when you operate that way under the law, it's like you're a slave. You're under a guardian. So what he's saying, the first point he's making is we're under a guardian when we live under that law relationship. And what Paul's making the point is, yes, it was that way before Christ came. But now the Galatians are starting to live that way even after Christ came. And they're slipping back into it. And he's saying, don't do that, because when you do, it's like you're living under a guardian. And so that's the first part he says. The first thing he says, who we are under the law is we live under a guardian. The second thing he says, look at verse 23. He says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So first he says we're a guardian, but he doesn't stop there. It gets worse. He says, actually, we're in prison. It's not just a guardian. We are in prison now. And what Paul's talking about is partly the rules You're in a prison of rules on top of rules on top of rules. And if that's the way you're trying to be justified, made right before God, that's hard. But there's another part of that. We're imprisoned by our own conscience. And Paul goes into great detail on that in Romans 2. If you have time, you should read that today. It makes a great connection with what we're talking about. But what he says is our conscience bears witness that we can't keep the rules. And that's what he's talking about when he says we're imprisoned. We're imprisoned not only by the rules but we're imprisoned by our own conscience because we know we can't keep them. So when we slip into this law relationship, I'm going to be made right before God by what I do. It's like being in prison. And the reason Paul says that is because I want you to think about this. Think about if you've started to go down that road before. I'm going to make it to heaven. God will be okay with me because I'm a pretty good person. I want you to consider what that really means. Consider what that really entails. Because if you're going to be acceptable in God's sight, that means you have to love God wholly and completely. And in order to love God wholly and completely, you have to keep his laws wholly and completely. You see where the prison analogy starts to come in. You have to keep everything perfectly if you're going to be made right in God's sight. So when you start to slip into the thinking of, I'm a pretty good person, 
I think I can do this. I'll just, I can keep the rules. That's what the, that's what the Pharisees, the uh, Judaizers were saying to the people in Galatians. You need to keep all these rules and do all these things, and that's how you're saved. When we start to slip into that, that is crushing. And what happened in, in Paul's day is there's a lot of, of, of good Jews that were so serious about this. They had missed that the law was pointing to the promise, what we talked about last week, that the law was there to point us to Jesus. And they said, this is how we're saved. And they made it all about that. And they started doing all these rules and all these things. But you know what happens is Jesus comes and he starts to clarify. And I want you to think about what happened in their minds. Here they're going, oh, if we just do these things, we just keep them right. Well, Jesus comes and he makes it even more clear. And I'm going to tell you the best way to get that, just just briefly, is read the Sermon on the Mount. And what I mean by that is here they were operating under, well, I can be saved by rules. And if you're slipping into that today, if you're thinking God will accept me because I'm a pretty good person, I want you to be clear on what that means. I want you to go home today and read the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And read what Jesus says about the law and the way he says. And what you get is Jesus says it's not just outward compliance to rules. It's about your heart. It's not just, the Pharisees were doing a pretty good job of the outward compliance. They looked like they were really good. And Jesus says, but no, it's not just that, it's your heart. And he gives all these examples. He talks about how uh, it's not just murder, because a lot lot of people will say, well, I've never murdered anybody. And Jesus says it doesn't matter. It's if you hold a grudge against your brother, you've committed murder. And he makes it about the heart issue. And suddenly... When you start to think of trying to be justified by God before God by your works and you add in the heart issue, suddenly you can see why Paul says it's like being in prison because no one can do it. No one can measure up, not one. And he said that last week. If you flip back, I don't know if it's to the same page or maybe one page back, but three, chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Paul says, For all who rely on works of the law, of the law are under a curse for it is written curse be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them now by the way jesus making this clear about the heart issue that was all the way through the old testament it was always there jesus was just saying hey you've missed this and he makes it clear and clearer but what it does is it leaves our conscience it leaves us uh wallowing in our inadequacies I mean, if we're really going to be made right by our works, that's a scary, scary proposition. We can't do it. So what Paul's saying is when we decide to live under the law relationship, the first thing is we're under a guardian. It's like we've got all these constraints on us. But then the second thing is really it's like we're in prison because we can't even do this. And you're in a prison of your own conscience and you're in a prison of all these rules because you can't get out. You can't stop it. Not a pretty picture, but he doesn't stop there. There's one more thing. He says, look at verse 3 of chapter 4. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So what he says is we're, we're under a guardian, we're imprisoned, and now he says we're enslaved. That's what it looks like to live under the law. But what does he mean, enslaved by elementary principles of the world? Commentators like to kind of argue over this and give different things and, oh, it could mean this and it could mean... And what they'll say is, one, it could mean demonic forces, spiritual forces, which I think, I think there's, there's some legitimacy to that claim. One is it's just the Mosaic law. It's all the Old Testament laws. Those are the elementary principles. And then some say it's just religion in general. 
when we just start to get religion and different things and we try to have that be what guides us. And I think the reality is it's the spiritual warfare, it's demonic things, and it's religion of the day. And the reality is when you really think about it, those two go hand in hand. That's the way what's happening in the spiritual realm manifests itself. And I can't help but think of the implications of that for us today because they are so many. And all you have to do is go look at the bestseller list. Look at the New York Times bestseller list. Go look at um, the Oprah Book of the Month Club. And what you get real clearly are elementary principles of this world that people are trying to base their lives on. And when you start to look at them, every one of them kind of goes, there's some mix of morality with pseudo-religion. And what they say is, do this, this, and this, and then you'll be rich and skinny and happy and everything will be great. And, and And what they are is they are a law relationship. You do this, 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 and this, and then you'll be happy. Or you do this, this, and this, and then God will accept you. And that's exactly what they are. They're the elementary principles. And what happens is when you buy into that, oh, I'm going to go to the bestseller and figure out how to get my life together. And you read a book and it tells you to do all these things and you start doing them and doing them and doing them. And then you realize, I can't do this. Not fully. Not perfectly. And not only that, it's not even bringing me peace. It's just more things I've got to do. So you move on to the next book and you move on to the next book. And you can see why Paul says we're enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. We start to get caught up in those things. And in my mind, I think of it as it's like a hamster on the little wheel that runs. And you just run and you run and you run and you run and you run. And you keep going and you keep going and you, and you never get anywhere. And the reality is you, you don't get there because your conscience bears witness that you can't do it. And the, and the truth is of a lot of those books is there's an ounce of truth in them. They take one little thing, one little biblical principle, and they expand it into all these different ways that it was never meant to go. And it's just a mess. And that's why Paul says we've become enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. So what we've got is when you live under the law that you're under a guardian, you're in prison, and you're enslaved. It's not a pretty picture. So let's look at the other side. What does life look like under the promise? And remember what we said last week, what the promise was. The promise goes all the way back to Genesis 12, God's promise to Abraham. I will bless the world through your seed, talking about Jesus. So the promise is faith in Jesus Christ for what he's done for you alone. You put your faith in him. That's what we're talking about when we say living under the promise, living under the gospel. The good news that you're saved by what Jesus did for you, not your own works. What does that look like when we do that? When we step out from under the law to the promise, look at verses 24 through 26. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now faith has come and we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. What Paul's saying is when you step out from under the law and you step to the promise, you're no longer enslaved by all this stuff. You're free. You're set free. I love that uh, Eugene Peterson wrote a book on Galatians and he calls it Paul's Letter of Freedom. And it's such a great title for Galatians. And he's saying you step out from under the law and you have freedom because it's no longer about you. 
and you measuring up to rules on top of rules on top of rules. It's about Jesus and what he's done for you. And that is so freeing because it's no longer about your inadequacies and where you've messed up. It's about what Christ has done for you and it changes everything. I like the uh, analogy Paul uses here in verse 27. He says, For as many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. When we step into the promise, we are putting on Christ. And he uses that example of like clothes. Think about it. You put on your shirt today. You get up and you put on your shirt. You're putting on Christ. And we think of that analogy that Paul's using and what it means and what he's saying. And he's saying we now get our identity from Christ. Our identity is no longer how well I stack up against this person or how well I've kept the rules. My identity is in Jesus alone and what he's done. So when we put on, you think of it, just follow the analogy through. I put on Christ, I put on my shirt. It's our identity, but it's also a closeness, right? When I put it on, it's right there with me at all times, in all phases, all, all, all day, always with me, right here. What that means, what Paul's getting at, is there's an intimacy there. When you put on Christ, when you take him, you get him. That's the greatest thing about living under the promise versus living under the law. We don't get a religion, we get a person. We don't get some rules, we get a relationship with a living God who came to do what we couldn't do. What a beautiful, beautiful, wonderful picture. And the difference is, is immediately you're no longer a slave. Before, under the law, you're a slave to all these things. Now you step out to the promise you're no longer a slave. You're no longer under all those things that were holding you before. You now have Christ. And it's not about the rules and the religion and all these things. Look at verses 4, verse 4, chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. Paul makes a couple of other analogies here about what it looks like to live under the promise now. And what he says, the first thing he says is we're redeemed. And we use that, that word a lot in church and we say bought with a price. And we and those are right, by the way. I'm not saying they're wrong. But we kind of just throw them out there like, yeah, yeah, redeemed. We're redeemed. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, right? Very Christian language that... To a non-Christian makes no sense at all, by the way, if you say redeemed by the blood of the lamb and don't explain what you're talking about. But anyway, but redeemed, a lot of times we jump right to the Christian kind of meaning and we miss even what Paul's saying. Because redeemed in his time was talking about buying a slave out from slavery. If you wanted to go and redeem a slave, a guy is a slave, you could go and say, I will pay the price for him so that he can go free. That was redeeming a slave. And Paul's using that analogy here. And what he's saying is you go and you redeem the slave and now they're free. Well, what he tells us is that's what Christ did for us. But when the fullness of time had come, he was born of a woman born under the law. Christ came under the law and he kept it perfectly. And in doing so, then he goes and dies for us and he redeems us from the law. Just as a slave is bought and set free, we are set free from the law because of what Christ did on our behalf. Right? When we put on Christ, we get him, God sees Christ. Which means we have kept, in God's eyes, when you put your faith in Jesus, you have kept the law perfectly. You've been redeemed or bought from the law. Just like the slave. What a beautiful picture. 
And sometimes we miss that. We slip right past the original meaning of what Paul meant, that the people reading in Galatia would have seen. They would have known exactly what he meant. But it doesn't stop there. He goes to the next step. Look at what he says at the end of verse 5. They redeemed those under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. He takes it to the next step. What would happen in a Roman society is if you didn't have an heir to your fortune, say a single guy that's got a bunch of money, he would go and adopt a son and he would become his heir and he'd get all his stuff. When he dies, when he passes it on to his son, he gets all. What Paul's saying is we're slaves and we've been redeemed and set free from the law. But not only that, now God adopts us and makes us his sons and he gives us all that goes with it. Think about the picture that he's saying. If you're a slave, you've got nothing. And what a wonderful day to be redeemed and you're no longer a slave. I'm letting you go free. You have your freedom. But not only that, I'm going to go ahead and adopt you and I'm going to give you all that I have. What a beautiful picture. What a stark contrast from living under the law, under a guardian, enslaved to elementary principles. And now it says you're a son redeemed, set free, and you get all that goes with it. What a wonderful, wonderful picture when we, be, we start to think about the adoptions that we become his son. And not only that, look at verses 28 and 29, what happens when you're adopted. When you become a Christian, you become a child of God. You become his son. And it says there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring's heirs according to promise. What he's saying is when you become adopted, you become his son and we all become equal. A lot of times we jump the gun on this. There's a lot of modern translations that take out you become sons of God and they make it children of God. And they switch it. Oh, no, we've got to be politically correct. We don't want to offend the ladies. So you're, you're not sons, you're daughters. And they, they quickly. But I want you to understand what Paul was saying because there's a reason he did that. The reason he says it that way. Daughters didn't get the adoption. They didn't get the heir of all the stuff. It went to the son. Paul says we're all sons because he says we all get the, the blessing. We all get all of it equally. He specifically says sons because we're all equal now. You understand what he's saying? We miss that sometimes in our society. We don't really get that. But he's saying, no, no, no. Before it only went to the sons. Now you're all sons. You're all the same. You're all the same under Christ and you get everything that goes with it. And I love that when you read that, that verse 28, that we're all equal. When God sent his only begotten son, Jesus, to do what we couldn't do, and then he gives us Christ, now he sees us as his son. What an incredible, just an incredible thought that he now sees you as his son. And we're all equal in his eyes. Spiritually, that's what it's talking about in verse 28. We all save the same way. We all only can come in what Christ has done for us. So what does all that mean? We look at that shift, the two of those side by side, and how different they are. What experientially does that mean for us today? Look at verses 6 and 7. What a wonderful verses. God's timing to celebrate Pentecost and what it means to get the Holy Spirit. And here we come to verses 6 and 7. And it says in 6, And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit, the spirit of his son, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, 
So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. What it's saying is when you put your faith in Christ, he gives you his very presence to live inside of you. He gives you his Holy Spirit to come and live inside of you. And not only that, the second you get it, the Holy Spirit turns and cries out to the Father, Abba, Father. Abba, he uses that specifically. He actually says, Father, Father. He says it in in, uh, Aramaic and then in Greek. And the reason is Paul's getting across the point that Abba means Daddy or Papa. It's an intimate uh, child-father relationship. And he's saying, when you get the Holy Spirit, he immediately cries out inside of you to the Father, and you're in that relationship. You're knit together. You're brought into the fullness of God and who he is by what he's done. What a wonderful picture. That you, when we praise, when we lift our voices, when we pray, it's God's Spirit working through you to the Father. He's the one working. He's the one crying out. What a neat, beautiful picture. And when we start to... So I say what a wonderful passage to think about on Pentecost when God gave us his spirit. That's what we commemorate when we talk about Pentecost. And what that means. And what it means for us is we're free from comparing ourselves to others. We're free from the guilt of our shortcomings. We're free to draw near to the throne of God because we have his very presence living in us. We're free to have a loving, intimate relationship with our daddy. What a beautiful picture. We can't even fully comprehend it. I don't think we ever will until we stand in front of him and what that means. And it's such a beautiful picture just for the implications of what it means for us as a local body, a local body of believers in a church, but as wonderful and beautiful implications of what it means as the worldwide church of believers. Um, Just the implications for us that all believers, that we're spiritually equal, we're the same. You realize that when we become believers and we have the same Holy Spirit and we act, he brings us in and we're closer now than your blood relatives are. You understand that? We have the same very presence of God living in us that works in ways that we can't even comprehend. And as wonderful as blood, family, and your close relationships are, it's even deeper and greater than that. What a beautiful picture. But not only that, I want you to think about what it means for the worldwide church. As we sit here and we offer our praise and our worship today, we have brothers and sisters in Iran in Iraq, in Africa, in Germany, in Japan, in Haiti, all over the world today, we have believers that are knit together with us at the deepest level because God is moving and working and bringing things about for His glory. What a beautiful, beautiful picture. I love to think about it when Isaiah says we're all going to come together on His holy mountain and worship together all people from all over the world, and we have the same Holy Spirit. That's what Acts 2 says. The Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost, and they started speaking in all different languages, and people from all over the world came to faith. 
And we all come the same way with the same Holy Spirit through the same gospel that Jesus did it for us. So one last thing as we stop this morning, we're, we're, we're finished. Let us be a people that is sensitive to God's Spirit in our lives. He says He gave it to us. He gave it to us to come in and wrap us into who He is. He gave it to us to turn around and cry right back to Him. Let us be so sensitive to that, being led by the Spirit. That brings me back to what I said at the beginning, why we're going to sing songs after we look at this passage. I asked, uh, one of the songs we picked, and you'll see it in your bulletin, it says, You Are So Good to Me. That's the name of the song. And when you read through the, the, uh, the verses, it talks about what the Father has done, and what the Holy Spirit has done, and what the Son has done, and then it says, You Are Beautiful. You are my sweet, sweet song. And I want you to understand why that song right after this today. And the reason is what, what Galatians 1, uh, or Galatians 4, 6 says, that he sends our spirit into our hearts to cry, Abba, Father. When we sing together, when we worship God, our actual worship is him crying out to the Father. So when we say, you are beautiful, you are my sweet, sweet song, God is our song. Literally. He's our song. He's the one doing it. He's the one working inside of us, offering back to the Father. What a wonderful picture. That's why we put the songs after today, so as we look at what God's Word says and what He's done for us, we can turn around and let the Spirit cry out to the Father through our voices. The song after that we're going to sing says, This is the air I breathe, your very Spirit living in me. Both of them center on what the Holy Spirit is doing when we worship. So I want us to think this morning as we worship, it's not just an emotional thing, but we're bringing our minds into it and our hearts, and we're seeing all of it come together, and then we're offering it back to Him. Let's pray, and then we're going to sing those songs together. Dear Lord, we thank You. We thank You for Your your Spirit and what that means to us. We thank You for what it costs You that you had to come and live the life that we couldn't live, that you did it perfectly. You give us the works that you accomplish. You just give them to us by faith, that it's one-sided, that we just take the promise you've given us and put our faith and trust in it, and that's it. And we get it, and we get your spirit. We just thank you, thank you for all you've done for us. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.